there are so few times when, as a citizen, that we can't be ignored. And one of those few times is when we vote. And we get this tool to be able to say, like, who sits in those offices, decides the policies that govern our day-to-day lives or spend the large amount of tax dollars. And we only get one chance to do that. And we are given this highly ineffective tool. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist who is passionate about social impact and building a better, more sustainable future. Every week, I invite you to care a little bit more so that together, we can all be a little better. Today, we're going to learn about approval voting and how it could change the face of politics in America. As I introduce you to Aaron Hamlin, Executive Director of the Center for Election Science, a not-for-profit focused on empowering people with voting methods that strengthen democracy. He has written articles for Deadspin, Bust Magazine, and The Telegraph, as well as many more. And he's been featured in Popular Mechanics, NPR, Inside Philanthropy, and MSNBC as an expert on voting methods. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greta. Well, I'm glad to have you here today. I would love to first just get to know what really inspired you to dive into this world of politics and really interest you in approval voting in the first place? Yeah, I think initially my first encounter with this was in grad school, because I think before this encounter, like a lot of folks, I didn't recognize the voting method, like how we put information on the ballot and how that's calculated really came into play. And in grad school, I had this instance where I was around a bunch of friends, we were in this student group, and we were talking about who we were going to vote for. And all my friends were talking about voting for people who I knew didn't align with their interests. They were even disaligned with the actual reform that we were in the student group for. So I just found it really bizarre. And I was giving them a hard time about it. And they were saying like, well, like if we vote for the people that support this cause area, then they're not going to win anyway. We're just wasting our vote. And they were going for this long-term incremental approach. I know I was kind of put off by it. Well, not kind of, I was very put off by it. And so I left there thinking, well, I could either maybe give my friends a hard time, maybe have them think a bit less of me throughout the rest of grad school, or maybe there's something else going on here. And that's really when I caught the bug and started to think about voting methods and looking at other ways that people could express information in terms of how they voted and have it calculated in a way that really appreciates each voter and what they're trying to say, unlike what we do now, which forces us in these weird situations where we vote expressly against our interests. Right. Or you're voting for the lesser of evils because you think that your candidate doesn't stand a chance of winning. And so you're voting specifically against your interests because you're concerned more with the what ifs of what might happen if this other person was to take hold. I think we have key examples from this as if you look at past presidential campaigns where people say, well, I'm either going to choose not to vote because I don't like either of these candidates, 
or I'm going to vote for the person who I think will be do less harm, which to me doesn't sound like it's something that will engage the populace, like a large portion of people to actually vote and to also do so with confidence that they're doing so with their own beliefs at their center. So how does approval voting get us closer to that reality? Uh, so normally when we vote, we go into the voting booth and we look at the ballot and the ballots give us some explicit instructions. They tell you to choose just one candidate and the candidate with the most votes wins. And I think a lot of times we don't really think about this very much because it's just the way that we've always seen it, but it really is kind of bizarre because like that's the least amount of information that you can provide for one. You surely like when you look at that ballot, you have opinions about multiple of those candidates, but you don't get to say anything about that. And often choosing just one candidate can really disincentivize you from learning about these other candidates. Because again, like if you're going back to the thought process of like, well, I don't want to throw my vote away. It's like, well, like why even waste your thinking time going through and looking at these other candidates anyway? And so what approval voting does is it gives you flexibility in a way that you've never had before as a voter. So when you're looking at an approval voting ballot, it just tells you to pick as many candidates as you approve of. You're not ranking or anything complicated. You're just selecting as many candidates as you want. And the candidate with the most votes wins. This means when you're looking at a candidate and say you really like a particular candidate, but say they're new or they're an independent or third party, or even someone that's bringing in new ideas within the party that you align with. Well, under approval voting, you can support that candidate and not have to worry about anything. And if you wanted to go ahead and say like, okay, well, I don't know that they're going to win. You can mitigate against that and you can support another candidate or more than another candidate if you wish to say, okay, well, this is another candidate that I find acceptable. Like I would be comfortable if they won, but I also want this other candidate to win, even though maybe I don't know that they have a great shot. And if there are also like just a bunch of candidates that you like and you have maybe a hard time telling between them, you can support all of them in a way where previously you would have split your vote. Now you can say like, okay, these are a bunch of candidates who I can really get on board with. I'm going to support all of them and not worry about vote splitting. So how would this change things like lobbying as a, for example, or would it, in your opinion? I see the voting method as really one facet of election reform. I mean, in my opinion, probably one of the most core components. In terms of lobbying, I mean, legislators have their own challenges. Like you imagine if you have a elected position and you're expected to be like an expert on everything. Well, sometimes you have to get there are different interests, whether they be public advocacy groups or, or otherwise that are communicating to try to like push their interests overall. So I don't know that the lobbyist component would be as impacted. Although one thing to keep in mind is that there may be some inter interaction with looking at campaign finance as a component. So for example, yeah, absolutely. A lot of times like under our choose one method, we use some proxies for viability because if a candidate isn't perceived as viable, well, we don't want to throw our vote away under a choose one election. So, but they also might not get funding. People might not give them money. And if they ran and were able to show that they had a support base, then they could stand a better chance of getting more support the next time it was time to run for office. Correct. That's right. And so like 
normally when we think about like viability issues, we think about like, okay, well, how popular is this candidate? Like what's their name recognition? What's their war chest look like in terms of like funding that they have? But under approval voting, you really don't have to worry about that because you don't have to consider the viability question. All you have to look at is, do I like this candidate? Do I like their policies? Do I think they would do a good job in office? If you check yes on all these boxes, you can support that candidate. You don't have to worry about any of that. Mm -hmm. Well, is there a really good example from any municipality within the United States where approval voting has already taken hold? Yeah. So in... 2018, we were able to implement approval voting with a local group in Fargo, North Dakota for the first time. Previous to that, like it hadn't been used before. We've really been pushing this and pioneering this effort with local groups. So we since implemented it in Fargo, North Dakota in 2018. After that, St. Louis, Missouri. And we currently have a campaign in Seattle, Washington for this year. We expect it to be on the November ballot of 2022. But yeah, so far we've seen some interesting campaigns play out so far with the use of approval voting. And that's separate from it passing over the ballot initiative. So to me, this reminds me a little bit of what we see when we're voting in primaries, as a for example, because though you might only select one candidate, you're at least able to vote from an entire field. I wonder if there is also some element of this or some element of approval voting actually went into play during the California vote to recall Gavin Newsom. Would you consider that approval voting? I mean, I can describe it too for people just so we get the quick one-two punch. What happened is that we received ballots in the mail that we were supposed to first vote yes or no if Gavin Newsom should keep his job. And then if yes then nothing would really happen to his role. If a majority of people said 50% or more said, okay, he's going to keep his job. But if 50% or more said, no, he shouldn't keep his job, then this next page came into effect where you had a field of about 30 different candidates to choose from. And I think you could choose as many as you wanted, if I recall correctly. It might have been three or five. I honestly don't remember. But you could choose multiple candidates. So would that in your mind be approval voting, at least on that back page, so to speak? I can't remember. My recollection in that one is that you couldn't choose more than one for the second part, hmm. even though there were there were many candidates. And that's pretty common, like, unfortunately. Like, I mean, you would think like, okay, well, we've got like 30 or 50. Like, when you increase the number of candidates, the odds go up that you like more than one of those candidates, mm -hmm. just as like a logical matter. But the issue there, I think, comes up a lot when you have multiple candidates in an election. I think that's a great example. Also, looking at local mayoral elections, like there are many cases where you could have like eight, 10 candidates. This is not uncommon. And so when you look at those and when you're looking at a primary or a general election, it really is ridiculous that we're being forced to choose just one because, of course, we can like more than one candidate it's almost nonsensical to expect us to like only one in that case. And when we like more than one, or there are a bunch of candidates that share some kind of similarity, we should be able to support multiple of them so that we don't have our votes split. Because otherwise what happens is if there is some other candidate that has some amount of, of support, but they don't have a bunch of candidates that look like them, then what happens is they don't split their vote and the other candidate block, even though that other candidate block may share a lot of popular opinion among the electorate, 
and maybe the most popular ideology overall. But for the mere fact that they had more candidates running, that ideology could wind up losing, even though it represents the electorate much better. And so being able to avoid some of this vote splitting that occurs is a real issue that we need to address because when that does happen, you can also have issues for the extremism too, because our current choose one method, particularly when you're dealing with primaries, you can have a lot of the vote splitting occur around the center. And so it can allow more extreme candidates to come in. Mm-hmm. And that's something else that approval voting guards against is these more extreme candidates, particularly when you're talking about crowded primaries. Mm-hmm. And the way that we look at it is not so much that we should reduce the number of candidates. Like You want a healthy field of candidates with new ideas and exciting approaches to the problems that we face within our cities and states and, and our country. The issue is making sure that voters themselves can express themselves in a way where in the aggregate, we get a clear picture of what we want and making sure that that's expressed and we can select someone who ultimately is able to make good decisions that are representative of the population itself. So how exactly does approval voting guard against extremism? To me, I'm not 100% clear on that. I'd just love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So this is a little bit more kind of like technical in terms of like how it works out. So I'll maybe share the technical part, and then I'll maybe give you an example of a very weird election. There are actually two kind of weird elections. So we can think about political ideology falling across kind of a normal distribution where we have like the cluster of people really falling in the center, and then it kind of like going down for the extremes on either like the left or the right, if we want to simplify this. And if there's a candidate in the middle and you can only choose one candidate, well, all the folks that also supported the candidate on the left or candidate on the right, they can only choose one of those. And so as a result, that candidate in the middle has their votes, but with the candidate to the left of them and the candidate to the right. And so they get fewer of those selections, whereas candidates on more of the extreme they don't have vote splitting from either end like the candidate in the center does. Hmm. They only have vote splitting more towards the center. So they only have that vote splitting on one side. So they're able to pick up more votes because they get the rest of the kind of the tail end of the voting population. And we can see that play out in interesting ways. I think sometimes people look at issues like this and they think like, ah, you just do a runoff. Like mm-hmm. that solves all of this. Like you don't have to worry about any of this if you do a runoff. Well, that's the second time of voting. <laughs> yeah. And they could say, like, okay, well, we can do a runoff. And other folks would say, would look at that and say, like, okay, well, it seems a little resource intensive, like maybe a little bit wasteful. Like maybe we can simulate a runoff with a ranking ballot. So there are different kind of approaches to this, but both of them have their own issues. So, for example, one famous election that had an open primary and then the top two went on to the general election was 1991 gubernatorial election in Louisiana. This was a crazy election. So there was an incumbent governor, Buddy Romer. He's kind of a moderate. And then there were two other candidates who were really weird. One was David Duke, who is a grand wizard for the Ku Klux Klan, very outwardly racist. And then the other person was a Democrat, but he was pretty clearly like caught up in a lot of like corruption issues. And so what happened here was the Buddy Romer did not make it to the runoff. So he was 
a bit more in the center and the vote split between him and the Democrat and then him and the Klansman. And what's interesting here is you would think like, okay, well, maybe Buddy Romer wasn't all that popular, <laughs> but we know that he actually was in this election, but it was only because of the vote splitting. And we know that because of the polling. Hmm. So between Romer and the Democrat, Romer won, if you looked at them head to head. And then if you looked at Romer versus the Klansman, Romer also won there head to head. So this is merely a product of vote splitting that we're seeing in a way that's not really super obvious hmm. either. We only know this because of the polling that happened in addition to the election itself. Because if you look at the election itself, it's kind of, kind of hidden. You're just looking, you don't have the information to be able to see what happened. And so as a consequence, you had these two really terrible candidates, the corrupt Democrat, his name was Edwin Edwards. Do they both have to have like <laughs> Edwin Edwards and Dave Duke? I mean, it's like they both had double letters for their yeah, initials. Yeah, crazy, crazy in multiple ways. Yeah. And the election, they had folks would ride around with bumper stickers that would say, vote for the lizard, Edwin Edwards, because he's a terrible person and not the wizard. So you'd have like these weird bumper stickers. And I mean, talk about like voting for the lesser of two evils here. And so what wound up happening was Edwin Edwards wound up winning the election and he wound up going to prison afterwards for felonies that he committed while in office after winning that election. So it was a real horror show overall. And this is what we invite ourselves into when we do this choose one voting method, even when we add a runoff into it. And what's weird about this is like, so that's with the traditional runoff. I think what a lot of people would say like, okay, well, you got this issue, throw a runoff in there, you get a good winner. It's like, not really. And other folks would look at this and say like, okay, well, it seems kind of wasteful to do that whole runoff process. Maybe we'll simulate a runoff by giving people ranked ballots to start with. And then we can use those ranked ballots to infer what the runoff would be by knocking people out who have the fewest first choice votes and then transferring their next choice preference over to the next candidate. That method is called ranked choice voting, and that's used in a number of cities and a couple of states. One interesting election with ranked choice voting was in 2009 in Burlington, Vermont. So that's the city that elected Bernie Sanders for their mayor before, super liberal place, and they had implemented ranked choice voting. Then I think they were still calling it insert runoff voting. It's, it's the same thing. And so what folks were told was that, okay, well, we're going to give you this ballot and you're going to rank your candidates. And when you do this, like they were told, like, don't worry about ranking your favorite first. It's fine. You can do that. And like, even in Burlington, Vermont, there are conservatives in Burlington, Vermont. They have a Republican candidate that runs and this election was no different. They had a progressive candidate who like actually does a reasonable job because it's Burlington, Vermont and a Democrat candidate and a Republican candidate. And the, Conservatives were told like, hey, you can rank your favorite as first, even though you live in Burlington, Vermont, things will be okay. And so they did. So a lot of the conservatives, they ranked the Republican as first. And what happened there was, again, this kind of like weird vote splitting from the middle. And so the Democrat candidate actually got the fewest first choice votes in that election. Hmm. And those candidates, like the Democrat candidate, the folks who ranked that candidate first, their next choice preference was for the progressive candidate because the Democrat candidate was getting eliminated. 
And so the progressive candidate wound up winning. But interestingly, if you do that same thing as we did in the lizard versus wizard election in Louisiana, then <laughs> we say like, okay, well, what about like if some of these folks went head to head, like what would happen? And in this election, the Democrat candidate would have beaten the progressive candidate head to head, and the Democrat candidate would have beaten the Republican head to head. So the Democrat was actually the best candidate, despite having the fewest first choice votes. Hmm. And so like the progressive candidate won in that election. But the other thing that's interesting here is that the Republican candidate and the conservatives that voted for that Republican candidate, interestingly, had those conservatives instead dishonestly ranked their favorite as the Democrat candidate, they would have gotten the Democrat candidate to win. Because after all, like once the Democrat candidate gets eliminated and goes over to the progressive candidate, like all those folks who voted for the Republican, they didn't get anything. Like all that information is being ignored. So had those conservatives actually ranked the Democrat candidates first, the Democrat would have won, which I mean, they're not going to party over like the Democrat candidate winning like the conservatives in the city, but that certainly would have been a better outcome for them. Than for the progressive to win. Yeah, That's I see right. what you're saying. And so in the case like this, you might say the progressive candidate was quite pleased with the outcome and therefore oh, yeah. they would support this ranked choice voting, at least in that jurisdiction, because it worked in their favor. But what you're also saying is that it could play exactly the opposite way and we could end up with an extremist on the other side of the equation when that's not really what the voter populace wants. And so it sounds like what you're advocating for is just for the will of the people to be heard and for our voting rights to represent what our choices would be as a populace, as opposed to something that gives ultimately special treatment to one group or the other based on what the arrangement in that particular city or municipality is. That's exactly right. And when we're thinking about the people who we are electing for office, we don't want these wild swings. I mean, we want good policies to be implemented and we want them to last. We don't want them just merely overturned by the next administration who has a polar opposite ideology. Well, it's very costly. It's costly to the people because right. every time you change something, there are costs associated with that change. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's just so weird. Like, there are so few times when, as a citizen, that we can't be ignored. And one of those few times is when we vote. And we get this tool to be able to say, like, who sits in those offices, decides the policies that govern our day-to-day -day lives or spend a large amount of tax dollars. And we only get one chance to do that. And we were given this highly ineffective tool. Mm -hmm. So really, when we're looking at this problem, we say, okay, well, we want to arm you with a better tool that actually gets you the outcomes that your community deserves. So that's the way that we look at this problem is arming voters with the tool that gives them a way to have their government align with their interests and not these wild swings. Yeah. You said something specifically about wild swings, which I have agreed with for a long, long time. I had in high school a political science professor, Mr. Booth who had a very different political ideology from my own. He was very conservative and I was very much not. And he said one thing that has, I think, been proven true time and again. He said, you know, 
it's a difficult situation in America when we can't keep a president in office for more than one term. When we have the kind of volatility where we're running from one party to the next, to the next, to the next, the people who pay are the American people. And regardless of the fact that we would probably vote differently from one another on every single election, I think, in fact, there's very little we agreed on in that realm, but I've still never forgot those words because I think when we have a situation where we have wild swings and continual wild swings, where we've got whiplash from one administration to the next, we also have a situation in which our politicians are less likely to collaborate. And we've seen that play out over the course of the last several administrations where they're becoming more diametrically opposed and less willing to collaborate on anything aside from, well, it looks like COVID. I mean, that's the one thing that they could seem to agree on and actually get some immediate relief or as immediate as possible relief for the American people. Still, there are many that don't agree with a lot of those changes. And as a, for instance, for me, I was not given a choice as to whether I would receive a child tax credit multiple times over the course of the last year. And so I smartly just put that money in a savings account because I knew I was going to have to pay the government back. I was going to have to pay them back when tax time came. Still didn't affect the fact that it hurt more this year to file for my taxes than prior years because money that I would have had kind of sitting aside in the government's hands was given back to me and now I had to account for that. And I imagine many people in our current life are experiencing the same thing. Like, oh gosh, now I have to pay this back when... So it wasn't really relief from COVID. Mm -hmm. So I wonder what your thoughts are about the decisions that are being passed through the present administration as they might reflect the walkbacks from prior administration. Like, is there something that you think we should all be more aware of than we perhaps are? This kind of whiplash that you describe is like all too common. There's one comic strip I remember seeing where there's this political cartoon where they had this car that was stuck in this like alley and there was like Democrats kind of like plastered on one side of the wall and then Republicans on the other. And like they were crashing into the towards with the front of their car. And they said, Oh, this isn't working. It's like, it's like, okay, back it up again. And they would just like go and you would see like both parts of this car just being wrecked on either side from just going back and forth with no real progress at all. It goes back to the idea of like, there's just no sustainability with this kind of approach. Right. Well, it's a lot of waste. It's most visible when we look at what happens with the presidential office, because every time there's a change, you're talking an entire staff transition. There's very few people that rest from one administration to the next. And even anybody in the world of business will understand it's costly to hire. It's costly to train. Each of these things takes a lot of effort you have to get apprised of where everything is politically. What are the goals that we're working to push through? What are the sorts of things that we're hoping to prevent? And ultimately, it's like a complete changing of the guard. And when it's happening every four years, the cost to the public is actually quite high. So I've often felt like there isn't even a situation where we really have a lesser of evils when it comes to our national voting because we essentially are given two candidates. And if we were lucky, the one we liked made it there. But most people are not at that level of satisfaction. 
you're ultimately sitting in a spot where the candidate that you would have liked to see in the White House or pushing policy forward that could affect more people in a positive way didn't get that shot. They were left on the chopping floor months before, after a straw poll in Ohio, right? So there's one interesting component. So we also do a lot of research within our organization. So we did polling looking at the 2016 election, and we also did polling looking at the 2020 Democratic primary. And the way that we do this is a bit different. So we're interested in voting methods. So there are all kinds of different voting methods. Like so far in our conversation, we talked about our choose one method, also called plurality voting or first past the post. We've talked about ranked choice voting, also called instant runoff voting. And we've talked about approval voting. There are some other ones out there as well. So when we do this research that involves polling, what we'll do is we'll ask each respondent how they would vote each of these different voting methods for a particular election. And then we do something a bit unique. I think it was a, a bit novel like for this research. And so what we did was we asked people a control measure question. We would say, okay, now we want you to be honest here. Just tell us how much you would like this particular candidate to hold this seat on a scale of zero to five. So we did that in addition to how would you vote under each of these different voting methods. And when we did that for the Democratic primary, what we saw was that both Sanders and Warren did significantly better than they did under choose one method during that whole primary. And even some of the other folks, like there are a lot of folks out there, for instance, who liked Yang a lot, even with approval voting, he got 30% versus 10%. Of course, 30% didn't put him in the front of the pack, even with approval voting, but a significantly different amount in a way that possibly wouldn't have been marginalized to the same extent that he was. But looking over at Warren and Sanders, I think a lot of folks will look at them and say like, hey, I think they may be too liberal for the party. It may not really represent the party's values in terms of people who are registered as Democrat. But I think one of the things approval does is it kind of gets past what we perceive as being politically acceptable. Because you look at some of the, just for them, for instance, like some of the policies that they ran on, and some of these policies, when you pull on them in their own right, they do pretty well, like looking at different aspects of like healthcare reform, for instance, different types of tax policies. And even though some folks in the Democratic Party may look at this and say like, okay, well, I think those are too extreme. Well, we don't have to always listen to what like the media or the party itself tells us as far as like what's acceptable. When you have a voting method that just goes through that, you can get that information directly in a way where previously those candidates would have been marginalized or you would have been told like, hey, the reason they lost was because their ideas were too extreme rather than like maybe there was just a lot of boot splitting going on. And going back to that control measure, one of the ways that we empirically know that approval voting does a good job capturing the support to the degree that it overlaps with this control measure. And the listeners can go to electionscience.org and look up the Democratic primary on our site. And you can see how well this control measure mimics the approval voting votes as well. So like you see these align up really well Whereas when you look at it with, say, our choose one method, or even the ranking method for that matter, there's a lot more in terms of discrepancy. It just goes back to the idea of when we dismiss certain candidates or ideas out of hand, I think we need to reflect on that and think like, is it that these ideas are really that far out there? Or is it just that we have a really terrible voting method that doesn't pick up on it 
and we need to use a different one that does. So what do you think our chances are of actually getting to a spot where our national presidential campaigns and voting are actually done and using approval voting as opposed to other methods? So when when kind of like getting into this space, like it was clearly a big hurdle, like overall, because when we were looking at this, before we got our initial funding at the very tail end of December of 2017, approval voting was something that was looked a lot in academia. It hadn't been used for government offices. It had been used in like different organizations, often like math and statistics organizations, even though it's a simple voting method. And we had to look at this and say, okay, well, we have to be able to show proof of concept, we have to replicate, and we have to be able to scale. And so we've started with cities, starting with Fargo of about 120,000 people, then St. Louis of 300,000, and now looking at Seattle with three quarters of a million, 18th largest city in the country. And next, we're transitioning into states. We haven't announced an, a state campaign yet, but that's where we're moving. The nice thing about states is that when you pass a ballot initiative in a state, which is what we do, like we don't ask the people who are elected themselves to pass this through legislation because they have a conflict of interest. We just ask the voters. And it's been popular. It's a very simple method. doesn't require anything complicated in terms of infrastructure. And I think that's what helped it pass in Fargo by 63% and in St. Louis by 68%. But as we look into states, you also get to control how federal seats are elected. So you're talking about U.S. Senate seats, U.S. House seats, and also electoral votes. So you can control how presidential elections are administered in that state. So you can have it administered by approval voting within the state that is passed as well. And that'll control the electoral votes for that state because it's up to the states how they assign their electoral votes. So if you pass an initiative for that state that says, this is how we vote for presidential elections using approval voting, that also controls how their electoral votes are assigned. Well. I'm encouraged. I'd like to see a simpler system enacted. I personally found when I was reviewing ranked choice voting, it's sometimes difficult to choose who you would put first because that's more weighted. It's almost like you're in the same boat you started in, so to speak. Yeah. And it can also be challenging there when you have a longer candidate list. So with ranked choice voting, just like the feasibility of ranking more candidates Often people will admit more candidates, which means that they lose information. And we know from research, for instance, like there's a Canadian mathematician, Mark Kilgore, identified that when voters don't put as much information down on ranking ballots, so they can fail to identify the correct winner. And the other component is that when you have a longer candidate list, because ranked choice voting is more complicated with its ballot design, mm-hmm. that it may not be feasible to even allow voters to rank all the candidates that they wish. And again, you're getting back into that issue of voters not being able to provide the information that they wanted, and then that resulting in not being able to identify the correct winner. So how can our audience get involved and push for this new method of voting if they agree with our discussion thus far, and if they think this sounds like a good thing? How can they get involved? Well, we have an awesome director of campaigns, Chris Rally, and what he's done is he's worked to set up a nationwide chapter system, which is how these chapters develop into campaigns. And so what you can do is you can go on our website at electionscience.org 
you go up to the menu at the top for take action and you can sign up for our newsletter. You can join our discord. And that's how we work to start these chapters. We provide logistics support for being able to help these chapters graduate into campaigns. And so we've identified all the ballot initiative states. We've also polled on all the ballot initiative states, identifying the best language for each state, which the reason we have that information is because of our new director of research, Whitney Hua, and she's figured out through a sophisticated polling approach, the best language in each respective state. So we have a lot going for you, like in terms of joining one of these chapters and moving it into a campaign it's daunting to try to do on your own. And so what we're here is to help communities with the support that they need to be able to arm themselves with this voting method, this tool to actually get the government to respond to their interests. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for joining me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I've learned a fair amount too. So I want to thank you for taking the time. Is there a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had, or perhaps a thought that you'd like to leave our audience with? I think a lot of times we look at things like a broken government and it can seem just so daunting sometimes. And it's a rare instance where a solution for this scale of a problem is so straightforward as saying like, okay, maybe you can pick as many as you want instead of just one. It's very rare that a solution can be so simple. And this is really one to take advantage of. So I definitely encourage listeners to jump on board, get involved. It's a really exciting journey to take back what's ours, our democracy. Yeah. Well, I think that's perfect. Thank you, Aaron, so much for joining us today. Thank you, Karina. Now for everyone listening or watching this on YouTube or Facebook, wherever you happen to be absorbing this content, I'll be sure to include links to Aaron's website, aaronhamlin.com, and electionscience.org and show notes on our website. You can visit caremorebebetter.com. There you will find a complete blog, video interview, and even a surprise or two. And there's even a five-step guide to unleash your inner activist. If you're itching to get involved and be a change that you want to see in the world, then just sign up for our newsletter and it will be your welcome gift in your inbox moments later. As you consider what we've covered today, I want for you to think about how you vote. And when you choose a lesser of evil, as you make your voting decisions, if we've had a better way of voting, how might we change how we vote? Would you engage more? Would you actually be more interested in what's happening in our political world? If we had approval voting, how might your voting habits change? So I invite you to lean into discovery, stay curious and hopeful, ask questions, consider joining one of those chapters, and let's build that better world together. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. We can even overhaul the way we vote. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 